Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Sunday, August 22, 2021. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's podcast. This evening, we're talking with Jim Rex, the Alliance Party's National Chair Emeritus. Now, Jim was the National Chair, but recently retired and took his esteemed Emeritus position. He is a senior states fellow in a way, as he spends his time tending to his farm and providing key political insight for the Alliance Party. Jim obtained a Ph.D. in curriculum and instruction from the University of Toledo, and over his career he taught high school English and was a football coach. He was also the Dean of Education at Winthrop University and Coastal Carolina University and President of Columbia College in Columbia, South Carolina. Now, Jim, you've been on this podcast many times, and in fact, you've helped kick off this very first episode of this podcast way back on October 6th of 2019, and this was back before anybody had even heard about COVID, which now seems like ancient times. Um, but I, I want to point out one thing, though. It's very fitting that you are now here again on the 100th episode of the Alliance Party After Dark. So welcome back to the show, Jim, and uh, it's exciting to have you here again. Well, thank you, Dan. It's always, always a pleasure to be on the show and, and to interact with you. Um, and thanks for the, the, the brief history of our of our relationship. Uh, it's amazing how fast things have evolved, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know, it's it, a lot has changed over the past uh, ninety nine episodes of this podcast. I mean, just to enumerate a few things, we've had a new president elected. Um, our Capitol building was attacked, not by foreign terrorists, but by an internal mob of insurrectionists. Um, we're in the process of ripping off that Band-Aid known as the Afghanistan War. Uh, state legislators across the country are trying to roll back voting rights. Our nation is more divided than at any time since perhaps the Civil War. And uh, amping up the situation a bit is, uh, is the COVID virus, which is acting as a catalyst for many other issues we're experiencing these days. So the news these past few years has been anything but boring, but it hasn't been exciting either. I mean, for me, it's been personally terrifying. <laughs> so I, I think what this country needs is a bit of healing, but I'm just afraid we're not anywhere near that point just yet. Well, you're right. And, you know, the, the impetus for creating the Alliance Party, as you well know, and as hopefully it, at least some of your listeners know, was this, um, this growing sense of trepidation that our country was heading in the wrong direction and that this division and, and hyper-partisanship was damaging our ability to have a more perfect union, that we were going in the opposite direction. Things were, were working less well, not, not better, as our founding fathers had envisioned mm -hmm. a few hundred years ago. And unfortunately, what you just gave us uh, you know, an overview of, a sample of, is evidence of that. It's not only going in the wrong direction, it seems to be accelerating. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, there's there's probably a thousand things we can talk about. Well, maybe a dozen anyways, big topics these days. But um, I think to sort of narrow it down to just a couple topics for now, uh, starting off with your specialty and your passion, which is education. And, um, you know, lately we've been seeing a sort of a curious hybrid issue that crosses the boundary between education and politics. Uh, we're seeing state legislators and governors across the nation making highly centralized decisions regarding things like COVID mitigation uh, and, and critical race theory as well, and trying to force these decisions down to the local school levels. And this is causing a lot of angst at, at that level. Um, in, in and in as far as critical race theory goes, I think they're uh, they're largely mischaracterizing it as as teaching Americans to hate America. And uh, this legislation, uh, I find to be uh, disturbingly highly centralized. So what are your perspectives on that? Well, as as you would guess, I have some some perspectives, some of them pretty strongly held. Um, one thing you didn't mention, which your readers may or may not recall, is that I was the elected uh, Secretary of Education in South Carolina for um, a four-year term from 2007 to 2011. And um, back then, there was no Alliance Party, and so I ran as a Democrat and uh, ended up being the last Democrat elected to a statewide constitutional office. So it's been a long time um, 
since a Democrat was elected. But I mention that to people for a number of reasons, one of which is that to get elected in South Carolina, which is a heavily uh, red state, to put it mildly, uh, as a Democrat is a little bit like um, uh, running as a third party candidate uh, because you're not expected to win. You're going to be outspent and um, all the things that third party candidates face when they when they try to go up against the duopoly. Mm-hmm. But while in that office, uh, Dan, um, you know, I. I learned a lot about our public school system and and how it is so integral to what we hope our democracy can be and and become. And in terms of almost ensuring that at least some Americans during their childhood, excuse me, during their childhood, if not during their adulthood, are exposed to ideas that are not necessarily limited to what their parents provide them in the home, that they have ideas that are beyond that, and also that they're exposed to people who are in different racial and socioeconomic levels. So they get a sense of being part of a community, a diverse community that we call America. And um, so having public education is a portal to having that set of experiences that many Americans would never have because they would stay in their gated communities or in their their church group or in their other uh, social uh, categories, if you will, that would not allow them to have that experience. So public education, the idea of universal education, which, by the way, was initiated and spawned in in America and other nations now have adopted it, um, is so integral to who we say we are and who we want to become. So in that role, one of the things that I was uh, able and fortunate to see was how important the locally controlled um, citizenship involvement in public education is. And as you know, in all of our states, we have locally elected school boards. And they're, they're put in place for a variety of reasons, but just a couple that are really important is the assumption is that they're more accountable because they're local. They're more accountable to the parents of those children that those school districts are responsible for. And if you don't like what your local school board member says or does or decides, you have a chance at the next election to, to rectify that. Also, the local school board should be more aware of what the particular needs or challenges, opportunities, and threats are for that, for that school district and the students and the staff that they're responsible for. The same thing, by the way, is true of our uh, legislatively appointed trustees for our colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. They're put in place because they're supposed to have the best sense of what the needs are of that particular institution and the people it serves. Well, here we are with this incredibly contagious variant called the Delta variant of the COVID virus. Um, And we're all adapting and responding to it as our understanding of it improves as we get more evidence of how it works and how we can stop it or at least um, slow it down. And we have in many states, including mine in South Carolina, and I believe yours in Missouri, we have had legislators and or governors who have said to those locally elected boards and appointed trustees, you no longer have the option of utilizing the tools that scientists and the medical community have given us to fight this virulent disease. In other words, you cannot mandate masks if you decide that is going to be needed and will be worthwhile. Um, You can't mandate even testing in some states, rapid testing, which we now have the ability to do. Mm -hmm. And you certainly can't mandate. And in some cases, they don't even want them to encourage vaccination. So we've taken away the tools from the people closest to the problems who have a chance of addressing this, uh, this uh, virus in a way that would help our children. And with the schools opening, as you and all of your listeners know, um, we are inviting a disaster because of how highly contagious this, this disease is by putting our children, many of whom are not eligible yet for vaccinations if they're under the age of 12, um, in close contact with each other, not just in classrooms, but on school buses, going back and forth to school Mm -hmm. on after school activities, athletics, et cetera. So it's, it's, it makes absolutely no sense 
and it's purely a political calculation, as you as you mentioned. It's a political calculation on the part of legislators who want to cater to a very vocal and aggressive base that they fear in the next primary. But what um, I, I've 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 seen this unfolding before us with with I look at this with eyes that I just can't believe this is happening, especially in our academic environment. And the academic environment encourages things like um, science, you know, which is basically telling us, hey, mask up, hey, get the vaccination wherever possible. And it isn't so much that our, our kids are exposed to the virus, because one of the arguments there is that children are they're not immune to it, but they generally don't suffer the, the, the horrible consequences of it. Okay, being th- that being the case, these kids still come home and they see mom and dad and they see their cousins, they see their un- aunts and uncles, their grandfather, their grandmother, and so on. So this is a great way. It, the children basically become a vector through which this virus can spread. And yet we have this academic, uh, highly academic institution known as our public schools that are doing something that is highly non-academic. And it, it's it, what is the political calculation behind this? Is it is it just uh, just to get votes or is there do you feel that there's other motivations behind this this movement? It's purely political. I mean, the people who are being led by some of these politicians and who are being influenced by them are doing it because they've had all of this misinformation and disinformation uh, about the um, virus and about the government's role in trying to protect community health. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, but the, the calculation on the part of these legislators in our states is purely political. And you know how I feel about career politicians. It's one of the, um, one of the reasons I'm such a supporter of term limits is that uh, they are making a a calculation which politically is uh, makes sense if they want to stay in office, and all of them do, with very few exceptions. And that calculation is, uh, I have to get through the primary. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're a conservative legislator, uh, Republican in most cases nowadays, if you're a conservative legislator and you do not want to have a primary challenger, you'd better support this idea of personal quote-unquote freedom to resist and, and outrightly reject the idea of being vaccinated or wearing masks. Um, not that that's where the majority of people are necessarily, but that's where the uh, base that's going to show up in your primary in 2022 is. They want to be told by their politicians that it's a parent's choice to allow their child to be infected and to allow their child, as you mentioned a minute ago, to infect others. And if they don't take that position, they will have a primary opponent who will run against them saying that they're not supporting, quote unquote, personal freedom. And um, because we have so many of our districts now in the United States gerrymandered, and we're on our way to getting more of them gerrymandered, by the way, because mm-hmm. now we have the census being calculated again. Right. Um, they know that their greatest threat to them not being elected is in their primary because the district is going to go to a Republican or it's going to go to a Democrat, depending on where it's, uh, where it's located. And um, they'd rather uh, run the gauntlet of the general election than to run the gauntlet of the primary in their gerrymandered district. Well, let, let me just share one thing with your listener very quickly, and I think you know this. <clears throat> when you were talking about the uh, infection process for young children, in my family, uh, my wife and I are grandparents, um, we have uh, 10 grandchildren, one of whom is this wonderful, beautiful, loving little granddaughter called Isabella, who's uh, six years old. Isabella uh, caught COVID, uh, let's see, about four, um, almost four weeks ago now, in her daycare. She was asymptomatic. Nobody knew she had it. She brought it home. She infected my wife and me, both of whom have been vaccinated. She infected her other set of grandparents both of whom had been vaccinated, and she had infected her parents, both of whom had been vaccinated. So she infected six adults with COVID, Mm -hmm. all of whom had been uh, thoroughly vaccinated. So this 
what you're describing, the process you're describing is rampant across the United States right now. And as I said a minute ago, with the opening of school, we're going to hear and see a lot more of it. And, it, and we're basically handcuffed in terms of our ability to respond in a rational way to this threat. Do you think it could reverse at some point? Because what I'm starting to see now are uh, famous, uh, fairly famous people, radio personalities and so on that are that are anti-vax, anti-mask, and they're dying. Uh, I, and you know, most recently here in Missouri, we have a politician here named Sarah Walsh. Uh, she's anti-vax, uh, anti-mask. She is a state representative. She's going to run for a U.S. congressional position. Her husband is already a, uh, was, I should say, a, a um, the uh, communications coordinator for the existing person, Vicki Hartzler, who is the uh, U.S. representative for the uh, 4th District in Missouri. Anyways, he they both come down with COVID and he dies. I mean, th- this has happened a few days ago. And you know, we're, I guess what the point I'm trying to get at here is that at some point, this thing's going to turn, that people are going to realize, hey, or, or could it turn? Do you think it could turn where, where people say, hey, you know, we're, we're dying out here. This, this thing is real. Uh, we've been falling for this political hoo-ha for the last uh, year or so. But this, um, it, because we've been falling for it, because we haven't been getting vaccinated or getting masked, um, do you think the tide could possibly turn? on the on on the anti-vax people i'm uh i'm somewhat pessimistic mm-hmm. um and the reason i say that is um i guess three or four years ago i was speaking to a group about this division in our nation and how it was worsening and one of the people in the uh, audience during the question and answer asked me a similar question they said well you know dr rex we can see how divided the country is we can see why that's that's so um, injurious to us as a nation, but surely there must be something that would put us together. And they said to me, can you imagine anything that would do that? And I said, well, um, yeah, for example, a really serious dramatic crisis, like for example, a pandemic. What if we had a pandemic in America that was highly contagious and was killing us? Don't you think under those conditions, that people would forget about who's Republican and who's Democrat. And we'd start to think of ourselves as Americans who have this common interest of survival, if nothing else. And surely that would bring us together. Mm -hmm. And here we are just a few years later where this pandemic has been politicized and we have, and you've seen the polls, I'm sure, Dan, Mm -hmm. it's almost, it's almost even between, uh, you know, one, those people who think the vaccinations could be or should be mandated and those who, who don't. Um, and you've seen the statistics on those people who are vaccinated versus those who aren't. The vaccination group is starting to slowly climb, but it's still just barely 50 percent, just yeah. over 50 percent and under 50 percent in some in some states. So evidence, uh, even even close relatives dying, my my sister-in-law's uh, brother, who is 68, died last week from COVID in Alabama. Uh, We have a daughter who's a nurse practitioner in Charlotte, North Carolina. She had a 30-year-old patient die last Mm. week. Um, So people are seeing people dying with their own eyes, in some cases within their own families, and yet they are still rejecting the the evidence, the reality that the wife of the uh, sister-in-law's brother uh, neither of them, by the way, none of the people I just described were, were vaccinated mm-hmm. who died. Um, the the wife of the 68-year-old, neither of them were vaccinated. She's not vaccinated. She has COVID. She's at home. She's going to recover. Her husband didn't. But she still does not want to be and will not be vaccinated, and neither will any of their children or their children's spouses. So it's a, it's a tribal allegiance if you will, to a set of beliefs that don't seem to be particularly vulnerable to experience or evidence. Wow. 
Yeah, that I I I'm with you on that. We were my wife and I. We just went to the baseball game a few days ago, and and we were talking about some mutual friends of ours who went to the same game, and they used the uh, the the metro system in here here in St. Louis. And occasionally in the metro system, there's a shooting, and so it's not considered to be extremely safe. But when you think about the millions of people that get that get that move through the metro system. Um, and you get like one or two shootings, maybe uh, a month, every month or so. And that causes people to say, oh, I'm never going to use Metro anymore. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, we're getting a much higher percentage of people that are dying from COVID. And yet you won't take the, the rudimentary precautions for that. So yeah, I think, I think that that mindset does become very tribal in a sense that, that there, there is, it is not, you can't reach it with reason. You can only reach it through tribalism. And right now the tribe is saying, um, don't use vaccines, don't use masks. Um, I'd like to bring this back to education, though. I know we kind of got uh, off topic there a little bit. Um, but there is one place where, where there is this, there's this uh, tendency within the education system to try and privatize schools. And um, there are two big cannons that are being used by the people that want to privatize school. One of them we just talked about was COVID and, and, you know, masking and freedom and so on. And the other one is critical race theory. And um, I, one of the, when I was, I was intrigued by an article that I read in uh, one of the Florida newspapers. Florida is one of those states that's trying to mandate uh, that you cannot have masks. And um, let me see what this is. Uh, this is called the uh, Florida Phoenix uh, newspaper, an article on August 6th, which talks about the fact that uh, if parents have any problems with their children being, quote unquote, harassed over COVID-19, they can, um, the, the State Board of Education said, hey, you can take your child and put that child into a private school and we will fund that process. So I see this as not really being concerned about COVID so much as it is concerned about uh, vectoring public money, money that's, that's earmarked for public education, now going into private institutions. And this is a push that's been going on for a number of years now. Uh, COVID is being used for that, as well as, uh, I, I believe, uh, critical race theory. And it's... it's, uh, it's um, being blown out, critical race theory is being blown out of proportion. But for the purpose of of stimulating this tribal sort of feeling that uh, you know toward privatization of our education system, which is going to benefit the people that are running the private institutions, but overall it's going to have a detrimental effect on public schools. So, any thoughts about that? Oh yes, many. When I was in office and. 2007 through 2011 in our state, South Carolina had been targeted as one of a handful of states where they thought the idea of using public money to support uh, private schools uh, was um, was very possibly something that would be uh, adopted or accepted by the majority of people in our state. And so a lot of money poured in, a lot of money poured in to the campaign of my opponent in that election from voucher supporters who wanted to um, move money into the private schools. And, you know, the position I was running for, Secretary of Education, which is true in every one of our states, and by the way, education is the single largest uh, budget item in all state budgets. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a big part of what our commitment as taxpayers is to our children, uh, you know, generically our children, not just our biological children. Right. And it's always been a really important part of, of America, this idea of universal education, that we should have some um, equality of opportunity. And, you know, we've not perfected it. There's still too many inequalities in education um, based upon zip codes and where kids live. But it's always been an ideal that we've worked toward and that we've given our money and treasure toward. Um, so the voucher system has been pushed across the nation by a group of people that really want to take their children out of the public schools. There are lots of reasons for it. Some of them stated and some of them bailed. Uh, A lot of times it has to do with them not wanting their children to be in close proximity to other types of children Mm -hmm. based upon skin color or religious beliefs or what have you. Um, So they've used different opportunities. Uh, Another one you didn't mention was um, uh, disabilities. 
I've seen I've seen vouchers argued that we ought to have special vouchers for for children with disabilities so they could go to special private schools that would uh, cater to kids who are disabled. Uh, even when that's been approved, and it has been in a couple of states with limited funding, it hasn't materialized because, frankly, most private schools don't want to deal with dis- disabled kids. Mm-hmm. The thing about private schools is, um, and I'm not against private education. I'm, I'm, you know, I have four children, 10 grandchildren, um, and our four children, some of them went to some private schools as well as public schools. But I don't believe that private education should be subsidized by taxpayers. And uh, private schools are not held accountable uh, in the same way that public schools are. I don't know if most people understand this, but first of all, private schools can can excuse or accept any child they want based upon any set of criteria. We even have religious private schools that say you have to be a certain religious domination in order to be a member of that that class in that school. Also, they're not uh, subjected to statewide testing and especially comparative testing. So you can see how they're performing, how well their students are doing compared to other students in other schools. So they're not accountable. They're not accessible to large groups of students. And that can be, um, you know, discriminated against on the basis of all kinds of things. And yet we're asking taxpayers to pay for those schools. Um, it makes no sense. And it, it certainly is not the direction this country has been trying to go in for the last 150 years. So, um, you know, whether it's COVID or whether it's disabilities or whether it's this argument of freedom and choice, it is, it is not something that is good for the country and good for the future of our children. What about the argument that says that the money should follow the child no matter where they go? Um, I, I, I'm kind of like, I think you've answered perhaps 90% of that, but there's a, there's a lot of politicians, I should say there are a lot of politicians out there that are heavily advocating for that. They're saying, hey, we all pay taxes so that so the, the, uh, the money should follow the child. And just to put some numbers to that, um, in Missouri here, uh, I'm just picking out Missouri as an example because, well, I live here, but uh, there's almost 120,000 students that are uh, considered to be in private schools. We have 685 <clears throat> plus or minus private schools here in the state. And um, the, the, mon- the amount of money that the state allocates per student in a public school is somewhere around $6,000 a year, plus or minus. So um, what that basically means is that if a child is going to a public school, and uh, switches to a different school, even if they stay within the same public school system, that um, the, the school basically gets compensated for the number of children that are in there. So in a sense, the money already follows the child. But what, what a lot of politicians are saying now is that the money should also follow the child when they leave the public school system and go into the private school system. Well, first of all, there's, there's a couple of arguments in that, I'll, real quickly. One of them is that we should equalize the support we provide for our children who are getting educated. I agree with that. And, and there's, no, there's no reason why children who live in a deprived or, or poverty-stricken portion of our state or in our school district should get an inferior education to a child who lives in a more affluent area. So we, we ought to be doing better in most states mm-hmm. to equalize the funding for children no matter where they are. In a sense, the money would follow the child no matter what public school they went to. The other argument is the one that you raised about choice. And I agree that we ought to have more choices and more options for parents, but they ought to be within the public school system if taxpayers are being asked to pay for it. In other words, the choices should all have some things in common, one of which would be um, that any child could attend that school. And we have ways to do that with public charter schools through lotteries if we don't have enough seats. You know, let's say you've got a thousand seats in a particular charter school that's very popular and lots of parents would like to have their child attend it, and you have 2,000 applicants. You do a lottery. You make sure that you have the same uh, diversity representation that, that you would have within the state at large, and you pick those thousand seats. And then you very quickly, hopefully, within a year or two, expand that particular option, that particular approach whether it's a magnet school or single gender or Montessori or whatever it is that parents are choosing for their child in that, in that 
public charter school, you expand that so you now have 2,000 seats. In other words, you let the consumer drive the choices that are available in high-quality public education. When I was in office, that's what we put in a choice-driven public school system so that as a parent, you should be able to find a match for your child and your child's needs within public schools that are fully accountable and fully accessible if taxpayers are paying for it. If you decide as a parent that you want your child to go to a private school and you want to pay for that out of your own pocket, fine, God bless you, go for it. And in most cases, parents make that choices under the set of circumstances I just described based upon religious beliefs or based upon um, certain cultural uh, you know, priorities they have that they want to see preserved or reinforced in that private school. That's fine if you want to pay for that separately, but don't ask taxpayers to do it. I mean, if we had a, um, a Taliban uh, private school created here in the United States, would you want your taxpayer dollars to pay for a parent to send their child to a Taliban uh, sponsored private school? I think most of us would say no. But if we did say yes, I'm sure we would say taxpayers shouldn't pay for it. So that's, that's the approach we ought to use. Let's give parents more choices. We ought to have more variety, but it should be fully accountable and fully accessible if taxpayers are paying for it. One last comment. Saying that, that dollars should follow the student no matter where they go and no matter what the implications are, not only for that student but for society at large, is like saying that the tax dollars from gasoline should follow the car. We don't do that. We don't say you get to use your money for your, your uh, gasoline taxes just for the roads you travel on, mm -hmm. just the road in front of your house or the particular interstate you take to work every day. We put that money in a pot that benefits everyone so that all roads are maintained as a result of those tax dollars. That's what we need to be doing with our public school system. Well, I have a question for you, and this has been on my mind for a while, and I've, I've taken the argument that charter schools are not public schools. Uh, the counter argument to that is that charter schools allow, they're open to the public, right? They allow anybody in, so therefore it is a public school. Um, it, it, the, the difference may seem somewhat nuanced, but my experience here in the St. Louis area, um, well, I haven't lived in St. Louis that long, actually. I was lived on the California coast for a while, but I've been here about five or six years, and I've done some research in the background. In the St. Louis area, we've had, oh, since the uh, year 2000, we've had 15 charter schools um, close their doors. And some of them have closed their doors even before they opened their doors. They accepted public money to set up their school, and then at the end, they, uh, for one business reason or another, they closed it. And when that happens, students go back into the public school system. So that's been my argument that charter schools really are not public schools. But I'd like to get your input on that. Well, you're right. Some are not. And, and one of the things that I think is confusing because of the way charter schools are, the, the descriptor is used, there are public charter schools. These are the ones that are funded for and approved by and supervised by the state the local school board. I mean, it's, it's still a part of the school district, mm -hmm. but it's a charter school as opposed to a private charter school, which I think is what you're describing, Dan. Mm. Now, the, the argument for public charter schools, and it's one that I'm, I'm open to, is that because they have a local um, school uh, advisory board made up of parents of the, of the kids who are in that school, they are also given some freedoms to experiment and to innovate. And so the, the argument for public charter schools has always been that it's sort of the R&D, if you will, of public education. That because our public schools have the responsibility of educating um, hundreds of millions of students, uh, not hundreds of millions, tens of millions of, child, of, of children, mm -hmm. they have um, you know, prescribed curriculum and state standards and all of the other things that are put in to ensure accountability and hopefully to improve quality. But everyone who understands big systems, whether they're corporate or, or schools, knows that that can sometimes get in the way and often does of innovation and trial and, mm -hmm. and, and experimentation. So that was always the argument for public charter schools is let's have some R&D going on where groups of parents and teachers uh, can have uh, schools that emphasize maybe 
I, I mentioned some of these magnet schools, mm-hmm. you know, where you have across the curriculum, uh, maybe a, an emphasis on science or on the arts. Or when I was in office, we had that, but we also had Montessori schools, which were very effective for certain types of students. And when parents chose that, then we got some great results with it. Um, we had other experiments going on, like single gender, which was very attractive and very successful uh, in many ways for middle school, especially uh, with, with boys and girls getting some specialized activities and opportunities that made a big difference, for example, in how girls achieved in science mm-hmm. in these uh, single gender schools as opposed to when they were in co-educational. The idea being that things could be learned through those charter school experiments quote unquote, that could benefit the, the larger school system, the, um, the enterprise, the enterprise at large. I, I, I buy into that argument, mm-hmm. but that's different than a private charter school that, that is allowed to not have that accountability and accessibility and measurement that I was talking about a minute ago. Hmm. And those are the ones, by the way, that are closing down, uh, that are not working in many cases. And, and that's because there is no oversight. It's basically up to them, just like a, a religious school that decides it's going to do its own thing its own way. Okay. Well, that uh, that that answers that. Then I've um, yeah I've I've argued in the past that uh, at least insofar as my experience with charter schools here, doing the research here, that um, you know, the fact that they can close their doors before they even open, and that's only after taking several million dollars out of the public uh, um, taxes, that becomes a very um, it kind of rubs me the wrong way and leads me to believe that, you know, public schools can't get away with this. They can't say on, you know, August 15th, sorry, we're not going to open. You kids are on your own, you know. So public schools always have to absorb the um, the backlash when, it, when a private charter school decides to close its doors. And so um, I just can't help thinking that the, the temptation for uh for-profit industries to get involved in charter schools and to push the idea of charter schools is, uh, is, is a big motivator. And I don't know for sure. I haven't done enough research on it, but I, I sometimes suspect that our politicians are uh, being pushed in that direction because, um, because it's uh, perhaps more profitable for their donors. Just one, one other number. Well, oh, well, go ahead. Well, just one other comment about what, what's motivating some of the politicians Mm-hmm. From, from my experience uh, to support this. Uh, they have parents who want their children in private schools for a variety of reasons. I know in our state, in South Carolina, when the public schools were desegregated some decades ago, a number, a large number of white, white quote-unquote academies sprang up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the public schools became uh, one-dimensional in terms of racial representation. In other words, white flight went to these private schools. Mm-hmm. Those parents, now probably grandparents, still have some of those children in those kinds of schools for the same reasons. It has nothing to do with quality of education. It has to do with not wanting their children to be in a diverse student setting with other children of other races. Um, and so there are still parents who want the financial burden of keeping their children in those kinds of schools for those reasons lessened, and they put tremendous pressure on those politicians from those areas. And these are often rural areas, um, but they're also some suburban, some suburban and urban areas also. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was running for office, as I said a few minutes ago, this was one of the major issues in my state. And the way I answered that was as state superintendent of education, that's what it's called in our state as opposed to secretary of education. I said, you know, the, the person, by the way, I was running against was a very strong pro-voucher mm-hmm. supporter, private schools, private school charters. And I, I said, you know, my job, if I win this office, is to make public schools more effective, not to make private schools more affordable. Mm-hmm. That is what the argument is to those politicians. There are a lot of people who really financially are having a difficult time or really unable to afford private school tuition and they want public dollars to subsidize that choice that they've made for a variety of reasons 
That, that's interesting that you bring that up because I, I was just about to put some numbers to that before I talked about uh, 120,000 students roughly in Missouri that are currently in private schools. And I got into a fairly heated discussion with another uh, individual over this because that individual said, uh, look, if the voucher system, if it's $6,000 per child in, in the state of Missouri, and if the money follows the child, it's not going to cost the taxpayers any amount of money at all to um, have that child go to a private school, and therefore we can have you know competition, et cetera. And I said, uh, hold your horses, buddy, here, because you know we already have 120,000 students in private schools right now. Now we take the 120,000 students and we give them $6,000 because the money's going to follow the student. That's going to cost the state uh, upwards of $700 million. And that's extra. And where is that money going to come from, right? And it's you think they're going to want to increase taxes for that? No, it's just going to be taken out of the public school system. So that's the only place that the politicians can think of drawing their money. So I can only imagine that that, that, that pressure of people who do not want their children to uh, be educated in, in a diverse environment, um, yes, it's very difficult for them. The average cost for private school here uh, for grade school children is close to $10,000 per year, and it goes up to almost $12,000 per year for uh, for high school students. So I can see that that's, that's quite a strain. Having a $6,000 voucher for that child would make it far more affordable. So I can imagine there's a lot of pressure on our politicians to do that. But the end result is that I don't buy the argument that it's not going to cost the state any money. It's going to cost us uh, well over half a billion dollars to do this. Well, the, the other thing is that that money coming out of the public schools will degrade the quality of the public school system, which already has its share of challenges. Yeah. And yet, so so the it become a, a self fulfilling prophecy. It'll say, well, see now now we want even more money for the private schools because we're less satisfied even than we were before with the public schools. The other thing it takes out of those public schools, which is sometimes not thought about is not just the money. It takes those parents with a vested interest in public education away from the public school system. And those parents that are uh, putting their kids in private schools are sometimes members of the more affluent class, the more politically connected class, um, you know, the mm -hmm. people who in some cases can afford the private tuition. But so they, 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 we have a larger and larger percentage of our population if that we go down that road that has uh, less and less interest in supporting and um, strengthening our public school system, which is really where all of our students could be and probably should be educated at some point. But whether we have private schools or not, it's where the bulk of America's young people are going to be educated, like it or not. And the, the most needy students, the ones most at risk, the ones with disabilities, as I said earlier, will, for the most part, be in our public school system. Yeah. And it is a large investment, but it is an investment in our American culture, in our American success. And that um, that becomes a very important consideration when, when talking about whether or not to, uh, to fund our public schools. You have to consider what its overall impact is going to be on this nation. Uh, you know, maybe you can shortchange the schools this year and perhaps next year, and you won't see the results, but they'll start trickling in in you know five, ten, maybe fifteen years. You'll end up with a with a with a public that's not nearly as educated, not nearly as prepared to take on the challenges of our technological future, and uh, as a whole nation, we will fall behind. One generation would do it, Dan. One, I mean, we yeah. look at look at what's happened with COVID. Just having, um, you know, not having in school instruction for a year, a little over a year what it's done to our student uh, learning and our test results. Imagine if our public school system continues to be attacked and degraded, uh, the, the results, the negative results we'll see in a decade in, in one or two generations. Yeah. It would be devastating to the future of the nation. I, I completely agree with that. Um, I did want to get to one other topic. I think we're kind of running out of time here, but um, I'm going to I'm going to use a, a segue here. You mentioned um, uh, public money being used to fund uh, Taliban schools. 
uh, madrasas. Um, and that's a very interesting idea. And it's going to dovetail now into uh, some other topic, which I wanted to cover very briefly here was uh, what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, you know, at this point, we're seeing uh, a withdrawal of the U.S. It's fairly, uh, it happened much faster than we had it originally, than we being the government, I suppose, had anticipated, and it's turning into another Saigon situation. Um, what, what are your What are your thoughts on that? that that's going on this this these past week this the, since well the past week since we've been uh, since Kabul was taken over by the Taliban. Wow, that could be a whole program all of itself. You know that, <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to talk about it. But I know. But I one know. of one well, of the, let me just sure I'll, go ahead. I'll just make a couple of real quick comments, and then I'll toss it back to you. Um, first of all, you know I'm I'm old enough. I remember Saigon and, and our withdrawal from Vietnam. <clears throat> I was a high school teacher and a football coach um, during much of that time. Um, I think. If there's any big lessons to be learned, hopefully relearned by the American people, it's that occupations generally don't work. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're an occupier, whether you're the British Empire in India or Africa with European nations or even South America, it may take longer than Afghanistan. But eventually you're going to find out that you're occupying something that um, no longer wants to be occupied and your vision of what that country could become or should become is not going to be materializing. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know how often we have to be taught that lesson, but um, obviously we haven't learned it yet. My initial belief is based upon what I'm seeing unfold here in the last couple of weeks, I, I think Biden made the right decision about us getting out of Afghanistan after 20 years. Um, But like so many decisions these days, it's being highly politicized. Mm -hmm. And he certainly made mistakes. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think the analysis after the fact will show that he made mistakes. But I don't think we've ever had a flawless president, and I doubt that we ever will. So so occupation doesn't work. I think if if the United States wants to... um, influence how other nations behave and how the population in those nations behave, uh, we have to do it through our own behavior, our own modeling, if you will. Um, You know, don't do what I say, do what I do. Look at how I'm doing it. And if you like that, try to emulate it. We have on our website in the Alliance Party something called the gold medal nation. And it's a metaphor for that for that belief. That if we want other nations to emulate us, as they used to do to some extent, Mm -hmm. they wanted to be like America. They wanted to have our kind of democracy. They wanted to have our kind of lifestyle for our quality of life for our citizens. They did that by watching us and modeling us and and wanting to be more like us, Mm -hmm. not by being occupied by us. And I, I think that's the historical lesson that hopefully we're learning from this. Well, I was hoping we would learn it from Vietnam, and um, we we obviously didn't. Um, I was listening to uh, Ralph Nader's uh, podcast. I, I tune in his podcast quite often. In fact, he was on our podcast uh, about a year and a half ago. And um, on the July 7th edition, he interviewed some guy, uh, a professor of anthropology at American University, a person by the name of David Vine, and he'd written a book called The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. Now, the thing that he pointed out, and it, it, I just, it just blew me away when I heard this, is that since the Revolutionary War here in the United States, we have been involved in conflict slash war all of our years except for 11 years. And we're talking like over 200 plus years now. Only 11 years, we have not been involved in some sort of conflict. And uh, some were, you know, probably considered legit, perhaps World War II. You know, we're fighting the big, bad fascists. But um, I think more often than not, we see these wars of occupation. And uh, it, it's, I'm bewildered now that, that this whole thing's being politicized because one of the things 
ironically, that's being screamed about on the far right now is that, hey, what about women's rights? You guys seem to care about women's rights. Well, the thing is, we, we occupied Afghanistan and promoted women's rights. Um, but what, I've, what I learned is that in the outlying areas outside of uh, the big capital, the, the Kabul and Kandahar and so on, that uh, the villages were still just being run their old traditional ways. And so I can't help thinking that, you know, we sort of, as occupiers, we went in there and said, look how great we are and look how, how many rights we have. And I think that's good. It's a bit naive to do that, but it's good to let, to let you know, a population know that, uh, that they, have, they can have equal rights. But it was done so within the confines of an occupation that was destined to collapse like all of them have in the past. And and that's sad. It's it's sad no matter how you look at it, because you, your heart goes out to the the particularly the women that are that are now destined to suffer. Um, but on the other hand, it was all built on a house of cards in a sense, wasn't it? Yeah, tr- changing um, traditions and beliefs and customs is a long process. It kind of goes back to our first topic. And that is education. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's generational. Those changes, for the most part, sometimes they happen quickly, but they happen <clears throat> they happen um, internally. They don't happen from external effects. I mean, you look at the fairly rapid change in attitude in this country regarding marriage equality. Um, that happened almost overnight to mm-hmm. someone my age. You know, and, and I saw a president during his sec- second term change his position from his first term. Obama was against. Um, mixed marriage in terms of uh, mm-hmm. sexuality and, and supported it in a second term. But those are the exceptions. And, but they happen, they happen um, within the instance, within the country, within the society, not from external, external forces. So it was naive, I think, for us to do that. Um, you know, one, one of the things that, <clears throat> that I think I see from my vantage point of having lived on the planet a, a while is that um, I think Americans and maybe the population of the planet at large, partly through social media and all the access, the information now that's flowing around the planet, I think we all have an overload of of problems and challenges. I think um, our mental health is being affected by it in, in many cases, maybe most cases to some degree. And there's just so many of us, um, and our problems seem to be expanding so so rapidly, whether it's the virus, whether it's climate change, whether it's income inequality, um, whether it's the problems with our democracy, which doesn't work anymore, you know, all of these things, any one of them by themselves would be intimidating. All of them together, I think, are almost overwhelming to the average person. And um, I'm not sure that we have any governments on the planet, including ours, that are capable of dealing with all of these problems effectively in a simultaneous way. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're going to see, unfortunately, I think more and more failure uh, of, of addressing these challenges. And for the first time in, in human history, those failures are going to have consequences that can deal with, frankly, the survival of of the human race, potentially. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of questions that are not being asked and are certainly not being asked by our elected leaders. One of them might, might be, for example, are there just too many of us as a species? Um, you know, perhaps, perhaps we cannot achieve improvements in the quality of human life on Earth without also addressing the question of the quantity of human mm-hmm. life on Earth. I mean, at what point do we ask government, our elected leaders, to lead us in a discussion of those kinds of issues? And, you know, here we are in the United States for the first time in our history being faced with the reality that our children as a group will be less wealthy, less healthy, and have on average shorter lifespans than we have, Mm -hmm. than we do. That's never happened before. So, um, you know, I think we're being overwhelmed, is what I'm saying. And I think we're being overwhelmed in a dysfunctional government even more quickly and dramatically than in one that, that functions uh, relatively well. And, and that's, that's one of the things that 
that bothers us, and I say I'm including you, Dan, in the alliance movement, is that this this sort of um, you mentioned uh, earlier, an anthropologist. This, you know, anthropologist anthropology has shown us, I think, pretty conclusively, that we have this innate evolutionary driven um, tendency as a species to tribalize, yeah. to to get into groups. And uh, you can see it in Afghanistan, you know, with all the groups within that country. Our problem in this country is that we have a political system, unlike any other in the, on the planet, that gives our voters a binary choice, a two-party system. Mm-hmm. And, and that has played out in my lifetime to, in a way that was unimaginable to me, let alone to our founding fathers many years ago, that we would have a country almost evenly divided as a result of that binary choice by having only two parties, one always opposing what the other is proposing. Yeah. There's opposition, and, there's, and so people have, have, have gathered in those two tribes, and, and that's built into our DNA, that tribal affiliation. And it's, it's paralyzed us as a nation in ways that I never would have imagined, as we said a little while ago, who would have thought that we would, you know, we'd be divided as evenly as we are on how to how to oppose a, a, a pandemic, or um, mm-hmm. or you know even on, on Afghanistan. So we've got to address that, and and that's what the Alliance Party is trying to do: is to get us to recognize that one of the reasons we cannot address all of these problems that concern us and that we talk about effectively is because of the way our political system is set up. Yeah, I agree. Uh, humans have always been tribal animals, and what we're trying to do in this nation is create a tribe of, you know, what, 320 million people to, to get everybody on the same page. And when you have uh, uh, forces within the country that are, for lack of a better term, profiting from not having that unique uh, or that, that uh, all-encompassing tribe, uh, yeah, you're going to just end up with conflict. And humans are are predisposed, has been my opinion anyways, that humans are predisposed to believe what I would call the pizza theory of life, that there are only so many slices of pizza and uh, you better get yours before you know someone else gets it and you're not going to have any. That mentality takes hold. And I think when people say things like uh, having a mask is my choice, my body, my choice, I say, no, really, that's everybody's body, your choice. You know, it, it, what you do is affecting everybody, but people fail to see that because they've uh, been hardwired to think not in tribal terms, not in, te- in terms of taking care of the masses, uh, but it just in terms of taking care of themselves and their own tribe. You know? I, n- I never heard the pizza theory before, Dan, but I like it. And I, <laughs> and I, think, it is, I think it is supported by the anthropological um, research that's been done about why we behave as we behave as a species. And the, the pizza theory was what was in place for hundreds of thousands of years, yeah. and, and legitimately, because when we were hunters and gatherers, there is only so much land. Yeah. And so you protected your, your, your hunting grounds, if you will, your, your, your tribal land, because that's where your survival came from, the, the, the animals and the vegetation in that area. And, and other tribes would try to come in and take it from you. It was a matter of survival. So there's, there's a reason why we're tribal. It was how we survived through most of our existence on this planet. It is now detrimental to our survival because we don't see ourselves as part of this larger community, uh, which is now has all of our fates intertwined. And that, that's what we have got to deal with and what our elected leaders have got to recognize also. Well put, and I think we have to end it at that point. We've been talking with Jim Rex, the Alliance Party's esteemed national chair emeritus. Jim, thank you again for stopping by to talk with us on our 100th episode of the Alliance Party After Dark, and I just hope that we can have you on this podcast many more times during the next 100 episodes. I hope so also, Dan, and thanks again. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. 
If you've enjoyed listening to today's podcast and would like to get involved in the Alliance Party, please see our website at www.theallianceparty.com, all one word, The Alliance Party. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you'd like to contact the Alliance Party after dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Also see our Twitter page at Alliance on Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in the podcast do not necessarily re- reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's edition of the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead. And we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.